You are listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Today I'm speaking with Itai Flesher, the Educational Director for Kids for Peace, Jerusalem. Founded in Jerusalem in 2002, Kids for Peace is a global interfaith youth movement dedicated to ending conflict and inspiring hope in divided societies around the world. They believe youth have the power to bring new questions and new answers to the struggle for peace and justice. So I'm speaking with Itai Flesher, an ex-Aussie who's uh, living in Israel, sitting in his apartment in Jerusalem at the moment. Please tell us, Itai, why did you decide to move to Israel? Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I was actually born in Israel and my parents moved to Australia when I was two and I grew up in in Melbourne, in Carnegie, and very much enjoyed my childhood there. I was a student at Mount Scopus, was involved in Hineni. Then I was a high school teacher for 15 years. After 15 years, I decided that it was time for a change. Uh, I had long service leave from Mount Scopus where I was teaching at the time and decided that it would be good to move to Israel because one of my kids to learn Hebrew, my wife's also a teacher as well. And so we sort of came for two years thinking it would just be a little bit of a, a break from life and a bit of an adventure. And then um, and then I started working at, at Kids for Peace and at Plus 61J and my wife works at Paradise now and I think we just found a really good life for us and for our kids. We save a fortune on school fees. <laughs> you can imagine you know being being in israel and also COVID. i i really didn't want to be in australia during COVID because that was very unpleasant so i'm sort of happy we did that that time here too um yeah so this is where it's time i don't know if i'll be here forever but it's definitely where i live now and i'm quite happy about that yes you still have family here i think your mother's still in australia i believe so uh You've got good reason to visit uh, Australia every now and again, and, and if, whenever you feel a little bit sentimental. You're also the Jerusalem correspondent, as you said, for Plus 61J, and uh, last week I played a large chunk of a very engaging conversation between Rabbi Donnell Hartman and Jeremy Liebler that took place at the Zionist Federation of Australia Plenary Conference in Sydney. You had the pleasure of speaking with Rabbi Hartman yourself only a couple of weeks ago when you talked about the future of liberal Zionism the protests and how Israel can stop its flawed democracy failing altogether. And you've been making contributions there quite frequently every every couple of weeks. And I think I'm going to get uh, to one of the posts that you made a little bit later on. We'll keep people wondering what, uh, what, what it's going to be. I guess you enjoy writing. That's one of your ways of uh, getting an insight into uh, things that are going on, I, I guess. Yeah, look, when I was a teacher, you, you know, every lesson, you, you have to take a very complicated issue, you know, what happened in the Six Day War, what happened uh, in 1948, and you have to take this complex issue and explain it to, you know, 15 year old kids in less than an hour. And, and you often wish you had like a whole semester, you know, to explain these complicated things. And I think being a teacher taught me really how to filter information and and take, you know, what are the key elements of story, what's the most important thing to know, what are the most important perspectives, so that you can feel connected to it, you can have an opinion about it, and you can, some social justice issues, you can take 
action on it as well. And so for me, I guess teaching flowed very smoothly into journalism because I feel like, you know, good journalism should be like a class. It should give you multiple perspectives. It should explain an issue in a way that someone that doesn't really know all the details can sort of feel something about it and hopefully have an opinion about it and maybe take action on it as well. So that's what I try and do in my writing. I write, yeah, every day, mostly on Facebook, and then about once a week I have an article in Plus 61J, occasionally in Haaretz and some other places as well. And then I teach on a lot of gap year programs too because, you know, a lot of people come to this country and find it very confusing because there's a lot of, um, I guess, contradiction within modern Israel. And you hear them on your show every week, so I don't need to tell you what they are. But um, I think if you can try and explain them in a in a nuanced way that gives multiple perspectives, that's really important because a lot of people don't want to hear opinions that are different from their own these days for, for reasons that are understandable. And um, whilst I definitely have my own opinions and I'm sure it comes through in my journalism, I also try and... Uh, listen really closely to the views that disagree with me and not just excuse them as being racist or whatever, as, as a lot of people do, but understanding, you know, the pain and the history behind those different views so I can engage with them on the level and the hopefully good faith that they're being made sometimes. So we've got you on the other side of the fence this time. You're normally the one who's the inquirer. I'm usually on the other side, that's true, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, fun, it's yeah. fun answering questions for a while, yeah. <laughs> So you got the role of um, journalist with Plus 61J virtually when you came to Israel, yeah. but your role with Kids for Peace, which we're going to talk about now, came a little bit after. When you went to Israel in the first place, uh, you went there without any uh, preconceptions or idea of what role or what job, uh, what you particularly were going to do. So this, I suppose, came up as a, as a result of your quest to find out what was going to be a, a path for you to follow. Yes, I, I came to Israel without a job, um, which a lot of people think is crazy um, to do, with, you know, when you're married with two children. Um, but as I mentioned, we had long service leave, so I knew I was sort of financially okay um, for a year. Um, but, yeah, probably within six months of moving here, I tried a few sort of part-time jobs. I, I considered being an English teacher here which um, thankfully I didn't do because um, just because one speaks English does not make one an English teacher, which I learned very quickly. I have no idea what a past participle is and how all the grammar rules work and all of that. But, like I know how to speak English, but I, I don't really know how to teach it. And Israeli classrooms are not Australian classrooms. And I think I was very spoiled in terms of salary, the support, the level of admin that you get as a teacher in Australia and uh, also, even this level of discipline you get in a classroom in Australia compared to here is, is very different. I think I would have aged much faster had I become an English teacher in an Israeli school. So instead, I'm doing something really peaceful and easy, which is, you know, bringing peace between Israeli and Palestinian teenagers in Sheikh Shabbat, <laughs> um, which, you know, has its own different challenges. It's something I really enjoy. I use a lot of my skills as a teacher at Kids for Peace. I think different from a school, you know, we run all of our programs after schools, like, I guess, Habonim of Nagiva, you know, the kids that are coming to us are coming in their own time after school. We have seminars and camps and all of that sort of thing because they want to meet children from the other side. Children, they're often taught to hate um, in their schools, children that they hear a lot of stereotypes about, religions that they hear misinformation about, and their parents 
want them to come to Gifts for Peace because they believe that um, what we offer gives, I guess, some hope and also a chance for them to tell their story to the other side. I think a lot of the Jewish kids really want the Muslim and Christian kids to know what is Hanukkah and what is Pesach. And I remember once there was a siren in Jerusalem and I asked one of the Palestinian kids, what did you do during the siren? And he goes, oh, it was another Jewish festival. I, I know the sirens, they're Jewish festivals. And then I said to him, no, 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 you know, the sirens are like the sad things. They're like, you know, Yom HaShoah, Yom Kippur, sometimes even a rocket attack. And, he, you know, this kid had lived in Jerusalem for 18 years and he never knew what the purpose of a siren was because no one in East Jerusalem had ever explained what's Yom HaZikaron, what's Yom HaShoah. And so he didn't know why people stopped or whatever until he came to Kids for Peace and it came up in a dialogue that this is why Jews have sirens in, in West Jerusalem. This is what they mean at different times of the day. And sometimes we test them and it means nothing as well. And the same thing for, for kids in West Jerusalem, like, there's a morning in, in, in June every year where there's heaps of fireworks in Jerusalem and all the Jews in West Jerusalem freak out because it sounds like gunfire and you hear like constant gunfire for like two hours and, and everyone's in West what's happened? Like has Jordan invaded? Like why are we hearing this? And it's it's the Tawjihi day. It's the day that the Palestinians get their uh, their bagrut, their um, matriculation certificates and they celebrate with fireworks, which happens all morning. So it's actually quite a happy day, but... Jews don't know what Tawjihi is. They don't know that the Palestinians in East Jerusalem don't do the Israeli curriculum. They don't understand what the celebration's about. So that's another thing that you'd come to Kids for Peace and you'd learn this is what's happening on the other side of the city. This is why they have this ritual or this practice and become something that you're not afraid of. And, and hopefully that will reduce racism and stereotypes. And that's really the purpose of, of Kids for Peace Jerusalem. Yeah, the sorts of things that you're just mentioning uh, echoed in the interview I did with uh, Dr. Tabit Abu Ras, who's the CEO of Abraham's Initiative. He spoke about the community in Lod and how there are Arabs and Jews living together when it comes to, say, Yom Kippur, uh, how the uh, the Arab community uh, understand you know, what's happening within the Jewish community in terms of the solemnity of the day and on the in, on the other days uh, that they uh, the, the Arabs have. Ramadan and so forth for the Jews to understand and they they're compelled to understand because they live basically in buildings uh, together with one another so it's really uh, uh, incumbent I think upon them to really understand the other side there's a big difference between Jerusalem and say Lord or Haifa or Akko you know other cities that that have Jews and Arabs because in in Akko for example Jews and Arabs may live in the same building uh, all the Arabs will speak Hebrew it's a very mixed City. Mm. Uh, Jerusalem is entirely segregated. So there are secular Jewish neighborhoods, the Haredi Jewish neighborhoods, and then you've got, you know, Silwan, Abu Tol, Jabal Mukabel, Rashashalach, you know, all of those sorts of neighborhoods where, unless you're like a settler, like no no Jews live in those neighborhoods. And the, and the same extent, the Jewish neighborhoods of Baka, Katamon, uh, etc., like there's no, there's almost no Palestinians in those neighborhoods. So it's not really a a mixed city in, in the way you have in other places in the yes, country. And then the other exactly. big difference is, unlike in Haifa and Akko, the Palestinians in Jerusalem are not citizens of Israel, or 95% of them are not citizens of Israel. And even if they want to become citizens of Israel, it's very, very complicated. So in East Jerusalem, a very clear Palestinian identity, and they very much want you know Jerusalem to be the capital of Palestine. All of them, all the kids I ask, they, which country do you live in? It's very clear to them that they, they live 
in Palestine. It's very clear for the Jews that they live in Israel. We talk less in Jerusalem about shared society because we're really two different societies and, and the conversation in Kids for Peace is really more about how can you have a quality in a city where you've got these two different citizenship statuses and also lots of rights that the Jews have, especially in terms of housing, construction, security, that sort of thing that Palestinians don't. How do we deal with those inequalities in the city as well? Yes, yeah, so because you don't have the uh, direct uh, connection between the people, that's where Kids for Peace, I, yeah. I, I guess, is a, is a vehicle for uh, enabling what doesn't happen naturally in in the societies uh, there that where you're active. So you're, you're the education director. Do you want to give us a, a bit of a sense of what you're doing, what sort of activities you are doing to en- enable yeah. this interaction to happen? There's a lot of things I've taught in my life where there's a textbook. Someone says to teach algebra, an algebra textbook. Someone says to <laughs> teach, you know, history. There's a book on ancient Rome. There's no textbook on how to run an Israeli-Palestinian peace organization in East Jerusalem during a time of conflict. It's something that I'm I'm constantly inventing the wheel because I don't really have... There are other peace organizations, but not exactly that work with children. Most of them work with adults or maybe it's a women's group or something like that. Our focus is specifically into faith. So a lot of our dialogue is about religion. And a lot of what I do to write our programs is I look, I spend a lot of time on social media, on TikTok, Instagram. I look at what kids are posting. I look at what's sort of on people's mind. I look at what's on the news. And then I bring in issues into the Kids for Peace dialogue that are relevant. For example, like, I know this might sound weird, but, you know, you probably remember the famous slap with uh, Will Smith and Chris Rock at the Oscars a couple of years ago where Chris Rock made a joke about um, Will Smith's uh, wife, and then he was very upset by that, so we got on, on stage and slapped him. So that was on all over social media that day. And so I bought, the, I bought that to Kids for Peace, and I said, you all, you all saw this. You all probably feel something about this. Would you think it's right to use violence if someone harms the honour of someone in your family? Some said yes and some said no. And we weren't really talking about Jerusalem, but it was very clear that underlying this issue of when can you use violence when you've been offended, the issue of Jerusalem was very much behind that. During the World Cup, we talked about uh, Lionel Messi and when he received the bisht, you know, this black robe from the from the sheikh in Qatar, about the symbolism of religious symbols in sport. Uh, sometimes we talk about music. We talk about the neighbourhoods of Jerusalem, justice. So, yeah, my job is really to, to with our team, I have a Palestinian co-director as well. Uh, we we write all the programs together and then our staff lead those programs and then I help provide feedback on it and how it can be improved and that sort of thing. How do you cope with language differences? It's really difficult, but it's also an opportunity as well. So as you can imagine, most of the Jewish kids in West Jerusalem don't speak Arabic and some Palestinians do speak Hebrew especially if they're men and they and they work in West Jerusalem, which most of them do. Um, but the children are far less likely to speak Hebrew. A lot of our dialogues happen in English. And when children can't speak English, then everything is translated. I think it's actually quite powerful because if you live in Jerusalem and you're Jewish, you can go through your entire day not hearing a word of Arabic. And if you live in, you know, Jabal Mukabel, Silwan, Kubachel, 
you won't hear a word of Hebrew during the day, maybe, maybe a little bit on a bus or a doctor surgery, but beyond that, you won't. I think that when a kid comes to Kids for Peace and they're there for two hours and they hear an hour of Hebrew, an hour of Arabic, that's also a powerful reminder that my language is not the dominant or, the, or not the only language spoken in the city in a 40% of, of Jerusalem might speak Arabic. I think that's really important. It, it is frustrating in dialogue that everything has to be translated because it makes the conversation a bit slower. Language is really important for peace because a big part of peace is understanding each other's languages. And, and maybe I'll add, in, in 2019, we took a delegation of Kids for Peace to Belfast because we wanted to see how they made peace in Northern Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants. And while obviously it's not the same situation as, as Palestine and Israel, we, we wanted to see in Belfast there were bombs almost every day in the 1970s. And how did they go from this place of you know wanting to kill each other to you know they've got a shared parliament installment now which we went to as well and a big part of it was language whilst it was still illegal for the ira to talk to the british you know there's a lot of underground contacts and they they could happen because everyone there could speak english yes they've got weird irish accents that are hard to understand but at least they speak the same language and if i was going to make a peace plan for for palestine and israel like one of the first things I would do is is to make sure all Israelis can speak Arabic. Most Palestinians do speak Hebrew, but I think if Israelis could speak Arabic, it would be such a game changer in enabling, because a language isn't just words. Through a language, you learn about a culture, you learn about religion, you learn about music, you learn about, it just opens an entire world to you once you have this, this language. I've been learning Arabic for, for three years now, I learned so much more than words in every class because in the same way that you can't learn Hebrew without Tanakh because so many Hebrew words are connected to the Bible and to, to events in history and, you know, the roots of, of every letter say something much deeper than the word itself. So, yeah, I think language learning is a really powerful tool for peace. Definitely, definitely. I just wanted to note, uh, going back once again to what uh, this NGO Abraham initiatives were doing that when they were bringing people together, they actually were using English as the common language because there was a certain neutrality about using English. If you were using Hebrew or Arabic, one or the other, it does um, sway things uh, to one yeah, side or the true. other. Look, I know a lot of Palestinians just feel a visceral, visceral hatred of Hebrew yeah. because they associate Hebrew with the language of the border police, the language of soldiers, the language of checkpoints. The only time they speak Hebrew is when they feel threatened. To the same extent, I know some some Jews, especially for Ashkenazi Jews that don't have you know grandparents that spoke Arabic, they feel a lot of fear when they hear Arabic on a, on a light rail or in public places. They don't understand it. They're worried that someone's talking about them. So we definitely have fears about hearing each other's languages, and that's there's a lot of things that need to happen before we have peace, but one of those is overcoming those fears around language. Yeah, because I'm hearing people getting phone calls uh, or calling up for a taxi, in even in Tel Aviv, and when they hear uh, an Arab voice on the end as being the one who's going to be the one to pick them up, uh, they, they put down the receiver and, and decide that they're not going to proceed with that because they don't want an Arab taxi driver. It's interesting that, you know, there was a there's a whole court case about it because in Jerusalem there's something called Get Mahadrin, which is a kind of like a kosher taxi service. And it's it's marketed as taxis that where the driver doesn't drive on Shabbat, so it's kosher, but it's really 
just a filtering service to allow Jews to hire only taxis with Jewish drivers. And there was a court case about it. There was a decision about it about two months ago where the court ruled that this is illegal to form a discrimination. And Get was forced to pay out, you know, thousands of shekels to, to Arab drivers that basically lost work on Shabbat because of this Get Mahadrin feature and they don't offer it anymore. But yeah, there is definitely a fear that people have over drivers over general contact with the other side based on those stereotypes which is a real shame because you know one of the best ways to learn about east jerusalem is actually to speak to uh, taxi drivers i think thomas friedman writes entire columns in the new york times based on what he learns from <laughs> taxi drivers and sarah tuttle singer and you know many others as well it's not the only way obviously there's much better ways to learn but i think i think it does give you a sense of of what what people are thinking i, I often find when i'm in taxis that uh, and i you know putting kids for pieces destination if i'm going there a lot of the Arab taxi drivers say, I'd love my kids to go there. What is that? That's amazing. You know, I want to hear more about it. And most of the Jewish taxi drivers in Israel are very strongly Likud. So they're often quite skeptical of Kids for Peace. And they often say, yeah, it's a nice idea, but nothing will come out of it. And, and kind of good luck, but you're wasting your time. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of interesting conversations about my work in, in taxis as well. I want to shift attention to uh, an article that you had published just yesterday in Haaretz about what's going on in Israeli classrooms where you're saying that children are learning more about theocracy than democracy. Uh, what are the concerns you're expressing in the article that you wrote? Yeah, so, so last week I went to an Israeli teachers conference at Hebrew Union College where it was basically organised just a week before school started, which was this week where a lot of teachers in secular schools were very worried about how do I talk about issues of democracy, pluralism, that sort of thing in my classroom in light of the justice reform. And in Israel, as, as in Australia as well, you know, teachers are not meant to bring politics into the classroom. But on the other hand, everything in this country is political. And especially when there's so many kids you know, attending the protests on both sides, for and against the reform. You can't not talk about this in the classroom. However, things that used to be not political are political. So for example, in the past, I think it's a teacher saying Israel should be a Jewish and democratic state. Men and women should be treated equally. Gay people should have equal rights. The, the Supreme Court should be able to, to rule on certain matters. You know, these these weren't necessarily controversial things to say in a classroom 10 or 22 years ago, but now with the current government where, you know, we've got ministers openly calling for, um, you know, wiping out Hawara and and very hostile statements against the LGBT community. You've got Minister Mayor Porosh helping convicted sex offender Eliezer Berland last week. You know, a lot of stuff that used to be kind of beyond the pale seems to be the norm in, in some of the more extreme parts of this government. So teachers are kind of where, where do I stand? Where do I put my voice in there? And then and then there's also an issue of funding, which I looked at in the article as well, which is yes. that uh, religious Zionist schools are getting 25% more funding now than the secular schools because the religious Zionist schools have a longer day. So in their day, they have an extra three hours every day of, of chumash, of, of tefillah, of halakha, of, you know, extra sort of religious Zionist values whereas the secular school students go home at one in the afternoon so they're not getting 
extra classes on democracy and liberalism and human rights and feminism and LGBT equality and so-called liberal rights. It's a problem because Haredi and religious Zionist students leave knowing exactly what their ideology is and how to fight for it and how to defend it and how to articulate it to their children. Secular, liberal Israelis, they kind of know their ideology in the negative. So they say they know I'm not religious. I don't keep Shabbat. I don't, I don't uh, wet fill in or whatever it is, but they don't know how to express what they do believe because they haven't had classes in looking at the philosophy of secularism and liberalism and, and all of those sorts of values. And, and given those values are currently under attack by the current government, I think it's important that the school systems where there is a secular, you know, ideology explain what that is. I, that, that I, that ideology is not an absence of religion, but it's a favor of, of reason, of secularism, of human rights, of rights for minorities, these sorts of things that are, you know, articulated in the Declaration of Independence and, and many other places as well. So, yeah, that was the gist of the article and it will be, be an interesting school year to see how they manage it. And, you know, I very much believe that every parent has the right to educate their child as they wish and I'm happy that we have Haredi schools that give a Haredi education and you know, Arab schools are given Arab education and Palestinian schools give a nationalist education as well in East Jerusalem. And it's important that parents have choice to raise their kids in their own values. And hopefully those schools will leave graduates that know how to articulate them and pass them on to future generations as well. Yeah, I would, wouldn't think that uh, there's necessarily much of a that's missed out by the liberal Zionists in terms of the protests that have gone on. They've been very uh, successful in mounting uh, a protest movement that has uh, an extraordinary longevity and, and, and continuity. I, I agree. Look, I think liberal Zionists have been kind of asleep for the last 20 years because they, I think they thought they were the, the majority and they thought that their views were just views that everyone believed, so they didn't really need to fight for them. And I actually wrote in the last paragraph of the article that this has sort of awakened them from their slumber in a way that I've never seen before, that I've gone to many of the protests and seeing the way that people come and make new and original signs every week and flags and there's a lot of theatre in the protests as well and stages and music and there's a meditation circle in one corner and there's an anti-occupation block and then there's Achim Laneshek, which are, you know, ex-IDF people. So you've really got a whole spectrum of Israeli society there on the centre and the left who want to come and sort of have a celebration of their values every Saturday night. Now, what I was reminded of, it's I... When I uh, read your article in Aretz, uh, was this uh, six-part Israeli drama, The Lesson, which traces an explosive classroom argument between a leftist or woke high school civics teacher, Amir, and his conservative, arguably racist, 18-year-old student, Leanne, played by uh, Maya Lansman, who won uh, an Oscar, I believe, for her, her role, and most, most deservedly. I suppose just that it uh, brings it into the classroom. That's why uh, I thought uh, thought of this very much. And you actually wrote an article about this uh, very series and commended it very highly. Yeah, the lesson I wrote about it because it's now on SBS. Um, so I definitely recommend watching it. It's also on Netflix in Israel. It's based on a true story of, of Adam Verta, uh, who was a teacher that was fired in 2014 for comments he made in a classroom in response to a student saying death to Arabs. Really, the whole film is really about 
free speech and about it's also the teacher is Ashkenazi and the student is Mizrahi so there's a lot of the racial divide is is in the series as well it's, it's about power and privilege and and a lot of those things and you know back in 2014 that the show was really radical but now this stuff happens in classrooms all the time so, I mean I go to Israeli schools a lot and uh, to, to recruit for kids for peace and you, you hear um Mm. Yeah, it's not uncommon to hear sort of extreme statements one way or the other because just that's the world we live in. It's very normalised these days and things that would be maybe totally unacceptable in a classroom in Australia would would be quite common here because it's just, it's just the discourse. Yeah, teaching is not easy in this country for, for lots of reasons, but this just is another challenge of really how do you do it. And, you know, I always believe... My philosophy is that when I hear extreme statements in the classrooms where I teach, I try not to sort of kick out the student from the room or or shut them down because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't, doesn't change the kid's mind. It doesn't change the mind of the rest of the class. I often just ask, where does that statement come from? Because often extreme statements come from pain. They come from something that happened to someone's family or to, to themselves or maybe they experienced some sort of act of violence or their house was demolished or they they were troubled at an airport or not allowed to go somewhere or something like this. So I, I try and understand where these comments are coming from. And then and then after the student has explained that, then I say, well, do you think that's true for all Palestinians? Do you think that's true for all Jews? Do you think that's a feature of, of Islam or Judaism or Christianity? Or is that or is that an exception to what those religions teach? And then I think through asking questions and through bringing the rest of the class into a conversation about do, is that something we really agree with? I understand this student has said this, but is that something we want to be said in our class about you know whatever minority it is? And I often feel like that's a much better way to respond than responding with anger. But teachers are not always able to think with a rational brain in front of a class, and sometimes you get very heated and very angry and very upset because, you know, this is all of our lives we're talking about here and a lot of these are life and death matters. And so we do respond in a way that's not the best way possible. But I think the lesson really forces educators and students and parents to ask all of these questions. And that's why I wrote an article about it and I think it's such a great series to watch. Um, so, yeah, check it out on SBS. I wanted to say also uh, there's a remark from um, the president of the Bay Beryl College uh, Professor Yuli Tamir writes that the greatest damage to the she, liberal democracy... She's a former education minister. Yeah. Former education minister, okay. Yeah. The greatest damage to the liberal democratic Zionist bloc is actually being done in the field of education. So it's not uh, judicial overhaul that we need to worry about so much, but it's more the education of yeah, uh, our I, kids. I, Yuli Tamir spoke at the conference I was at last week. I think she's right. I think I think what she's kind of saying is that the secular Zionists have kind of dropped the ball in terms of there's all this stuff we take for granted and we don't explain. We say, you know, it's important that straight and gay people should have equal rights or it's important that Jews and Arabs should all have the, the right to vote and to travel, but we don't explain why. We just It's like something we take for granted, whereas a religious Jew doesn't just teach their child to observe halakha. They also learn Musar and philosophy and Pirkei Avot and... You know, there's a whole educational structure around Shabbat that it's not just like lighting candles or not turning on a light switch. Like there's hundreds of like stories and anecdotes and plays and foods. And and so Shabbat is this really rich experience because 
it's not just a list of do's and don'ts, it's a way of life. For a lot of secular Jews, liberalism is, yeah, it's a sense of do's and don'ts. I believe this and I don't believe, but, you know, how much time have we spent studying the secular philosophers, Spinoza, if you want to go back to a Jewish one, but, you know, Carl Sagan today or uh, Beryl Wine, or, yeah, not Beryl Wine, Sherwin Wine, sorry. Um, but, like, how, how much do we understand, uh, or, or A.D. Gordon for that matter, um, how much do we understand the philosophy behind secular liberal Zionist ideals? Do we ever have a Chevruta or a Beit Midrash or an all-night Shavuot study session about about these values and understanding their history and their context? So that is happening now in Israel. Like, that's definitely, there is now this, like, I guess you'd call it secular Jewish learning movement. There's groups like Bina and Elul that are doing that. But it needs to happen on a much wider scale if the liberal secular camp wants to be able to fight and honour and defend their values in the same way that the Haredi and uh, right-wing camp do. Yes, I found that uh, when it came to my Zionism, which was emergent when I started going to university, that only when I got involved with a group at the time called the Radical Zionists and we uh, started to look at all of the philosophers, all the thinkers, going back to the uh, Sirkins and the Borokhovs and all these people that I uh, suddenly got infused with uh, an understanding of uh, what it was that I was uh, inheriting and and being able to stand by it much more strongly than I could before. Mm. Uh, I was a, just a short anecdote. When I was in Melbourne, I used to run a program called Ayeka, which was a secular Jewish learning hub. Uh, it was based at Monash University uh, about two over 10 years ago and uh, we did this course called Hitchhiker's Guide to the the Torah which was a secular reading of every book in the in the Bible and several books in the Tanakh as well looking at how these stories shape Jewish identity today and what they teach us about love and justice and revenge and honor and dignity and all of these sorts of things and it was you know a lot of the people came with Bugrim of you know Hashem and Habonim and those sorts of places that were sort of thirsting for Torah learning that wasn't geared towards observance of halacha, but was rather geared towards strengthening Jewish uh, humanistic values. And then I was also involved in Kolainu a lot, which which does that in in Melbourne too. So, yeah, I think that that is there's not a lot of educators that that do that kind of work, but it's like super important, especially now mm. in in the current situation. Now you were present at almost every one of the court hearings over the Michael Lifer case. You want to give us just a, a brief idea of what that experience was like? Yeah, so before I get to the court case, I was also a teacher at Adas as well. I, I was an right. English um, and physical education and history teacher there back in 2003. I obviously met a number of people in the community there, and then I first met Dasi at Limud in 2017 in Sydney and then in Melbourne, and then uh, obviously we, we've been in contact since together with Nicole and Ellie throughout the, the trials. So there was about a team of about four or five Australians that came to every single one of the trials in Jerusalem and we would update the sisters in Australia uh, through WhatsApp on exactly what was happening in the trials, what was being said, the evidence that was being collected, what they were saying about them as well. I learned a lot about the Israeli justice system that frankly horrified me. I think, you know, in Australia, courts are very dignified places. You know, the judge is called Your Honour and people stand up and there's a lot of decorum. And in Israel, the courtroom feels like a chadarochel. You know, like people walk in and out, people come in late, people yell at the judge, they yell at the other side. There's very little decorum. Uh, Witnesses would speak from the room who were not sworn in. 
all sorts of eccentric rabbis would show up at a lot of these trials holding like um kameot like uh, sort of like good luck charms kabbalistic uh, verses uh, pictures of rabbis they would hold up to the rabbi that you know bring good luck obviously a lot of journalists and media attention so yeah the trials felt like a bit of a circus to be honest and and when i've watched the australian trials on zoom i'm just, like so shocked by the the decorum and the order of them and then i also think like i remember feeling there was something fishy going on when all the trials about life as mental health there were several dozen of them and thinking there's something going on and i can't put my finger on it and then when raviv drucker broke the story about um you know our health minister yakov litzman pressuring uh, the psychiatrist dr jacob chans to to change basically write a fake medical report for Michael Leifer that would say that she's not fit to be extradited to Australia. Kind of all the pieces fell together. And I just found the whole thing very sad. I found the whole thing that, like, the health minister, is his job is to look after the health of, of Israelis and the health of victims of child sexual abuse and the fact that it wasn't just Michael Leifer. There was over 10 different abusers that he'd been advocating for in jail and then eventually in a plea bargain he he admitted guilt to this uh, and he and he got a fine of a ridiculous amount of 3000 shekels which is like nothing for all the pain he caused uh, Nicole Dasinelli so yeah i think that trial shaped a lot of of how i feel about the israeli justice system and how it's it doesn't really the, the, there's not enough judges here the court cases are way too slow there's way too much time between each hearing like it doesn't work for the victims i think in the way it should and i think a, a, an important part of any democracy is a functioning justice system and that that's just not victims of sexual abuse it's palestinians it's haredim to anyone else that needs the courts when their rights are trampled by the government or anyone else needs to have a fair and functioning justice system and it's something we we have a lot to work on we have a great healthcare system here but the justice system is needs a lot of reform just not the kind the government wants to do but it definitely needs a lot of reform yeah so when you're saying justice system needs a lot of reform what about the pinnacle of the justice system which has been the israeli supreme court that everybody is trying to defend with uh, their heart and soul yes i have mixed feelings about the supreme court i don't think it's a bastion of liberal secular rights as a lot of the protesters say there's in fact many illiberal decisions from the from the supreme court I think you need checks and balances in any democracy. Maybe the Supreme Court isn't the best place to have those checks and balances, but that's how our country was set up. We don't have a second chamber or a third chamber or voice or, you know, anything like this yeah. in Australia. Like the only power above the executive is the Supreme Court. So for better or worse, that's been the check on undemocratic legislation up until now and I think if people don't like the Supreme Court and they want an elected body to make a check on the power of the executive then Israel can have a senate which would be voted in in a different way to the Knesset and bring in different voices and maybe have electorates and things like that but at, at the moment the the problem with the justice reform is that they want to get rid of the supreme court and remove its power to not replace it with anything else which would mean that the the majority of the Knesset the prime minister would basically have complete power with no with no checks and balances so in absence of anything else the best thing to be a check on the balance of power is the supreme court but if you want to get rid of it then find something else that's going to do that to to deal with matters of big questions that we don't know the answers to the status of shabbat asylum seekers the haredi draft you know these big questions that the knesset can't seem to 
resolve in a way that's fair and equitable. Sometimes you need other voices, you need other experts to do this. In, in the lack of anything else, I think the Supreme Court is really important. Well, there was a few Michael cases that ended up in the Supreme Court as well. They had a lot more decorum, I have to say, than the district court. They gave a fair hearing to, to all sides, but they also didn't tolerate bullshit like you saw in the district court in terms of you know, interjections, interruption, unsworn witnesses, you know, frivolous arguments, that sort of things. I felt that they were good and professional judges and they're just very overworked. And I think the main thing Israel needs right now is more judges, more courts, and uh, an ability to give justice in a much more efficient way in in all trials because it's just, it's impossible to do, you know, the Prime Minister's court case is going to go for seven, eight years. Like, trials shouldn't take that long. In Australia... I've been on jury duty before. They tell you this trial is going to go for five weeks, six weeks. You sit every day and then you come to a verdict. Here they sit for one day and then you don't meet again for another six weeks. Then you sit for another day and you wait another five weeks to your next meeting. Like it's it's ridiculous. There's so many gaps between each day of a trial where it should just be done consecutively in one block in a week, two weeks, three weeks, come to a verdict, innocent, guilty, and then move on. Yeah, I, I just feel like the way we do it here is terrible. It's not always, uh, as you say, here in Australia, there is uh, one case that uh, these bullying uh, boys who were bullied at Brighton Secondary College, which is still under determination, we're going to wait uh, virtually a whole year for a single judge to make a determination yeah. on the evidence of that case. It's too long. It's too long. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It doesn't seem sensible that uh, it needs so much time to determine a, a verdict. It's been really great having a chat to you today, Itai, renewing our acquaintance, remembering good times at Limurdoz and so forth. Uh, I thank you very much for uh, being on the Israel Connection with me. Thanks for your time and appreciate all the questions and wishing you a Shana Tova Metuka. The same to you also. You've been listening to an interview with Aussie expat Itai Flesher, the Educational Director for Kids for Peace Jerusalem. Last week I attended the Wietso Gala event and recorded the proceedings only to find out yesterday that Shari Markson's PR was not granting permission for any part of the recording to be played, no reason given. Certainly Shari Markson delivered a very strong criticism of what Labor has done in selling out Israel over the Palestine issue, but what I heard was essentially what Shari has been saying anyway as a journalist on Sky News. May I say that if you have been watching her Sky News reports on this sordid matter, you will have forgotten the full picture. Let me play a small portion of one of her lambastings of Labor, where she hones in particularly on Anthony Albanese, making it clear that he is the least friendly Australian Prime Minister toward Israel that we have seen. Albanese seems to approach issues from the left. Israel is so far removed from being an issue that most Australians care about particularly during a major cost-of-living crisis, and yet it remains a core obsession for the far Labor left. Bill Shorten and Julia Gillard were firm friends of Israel. So were Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. But Albanese has come from the far left fringes of the Labor Party himself. This history, this background, inevitably underpins his approach to policy as Prime Minister. Albanese has never been a natural supporter of Israel. A look back at his public comments and parliamentary speeches shows this. The year before he became leader, 
before he became opposition leader, he accused Israel of not acting in a proportionate way, and he backed an investigation by the biased UN Human Rights Council into, and I quote, the disproportionate and indiscriminate use of force by the Israeli occupying forces against Palestinian civilians. Albanese backing that investigation. It was clearly a biased motion that Australia and the United States didn't support, but Albanese did, and he spoke about it on ABC television. This from 2018. No doubt there has been provocation uh, in Gaza, but... uh International law requires a proportionate response and those people who have guns on one side and on the other side has rocks. And in 2017, Albanese gave a talk on Palestine alongside two of Israel's biggest critics, Bob Carr and Tony Burke. This was a policy forum on Palestine in June 2017. But this has been Albanese's approach his entire career. He's been speaking about illegal settlements for 20 years, long before he finally managed as Prime Minister to pass the motion on the issue through Labor caucus. These comments here are from 2002. While many Israelis continue to demonise all Palestinians as terrorists, Palestinians experience Israelis as occupiers and employers of cheap, cheap labour, interrogators and jailers. Meanwhile, the government of Israel continues to allow fundamentalists to build illegal settlements on Palestinian land. Here's Albanese speaking about occupied territories also in 2002. In the grievance debate on Monday, I pointed out that it is now more than 35 years since UN Security Council Resolution 242 was carried, the 22nd of November 1967, calling for... Israel to remove its, its military and its control of the occupied territories. Since that time, the systematic repression of the occupied by the occupiers has been at the core of Middle East politics. And Albanese also called for Israel to return land to the Palestinians. The Palestinians must be given their homeland. The occupation of Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem by the Israelis has created generations of oppressed people. Now have a look at some other inflammatory remarks he made. And I note that at times they were also wrong when it comes to his claim that Israel funded Hamas. The creation of the State of Israel in 1948 and subsequent events have produced up to 3.8 million Palestinian refugees to date. It is unfortunate that it was Israel who first funded Hamas. Then in more recent times, in 2015, Albanese spoke about witnessing Israeli oppression of Palestinians. And uh, looked at the humiliation which Palestinians were forced to undertake in queuing uh, to try to get across to get work each and every day. Uh, the ongoing uh, extreme poverty uh, that uh, people were subjected to and the lack of rights. Albanese is partly responsible for setting up the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine group. So late last night I got invite to a media conference online and I will play part thereof with Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute, a Senior Fellow in the Washington 
Institute's Irwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel strategic relationship. We hear him giving his assessment of recent diplomatic developments in the Saudi-Palestinian relationship. These developments, the Palestinian-Saudi developments, are happening against the backdrop of some major shifts that are uh, happening in the region and in Washington. Today in Washington, the issue of Saudi-Israeli normalization, is it going to happen, is it not going to happen, what are the conditions, etc., is the centerpiece of uh, Washington's uh, Middle East policy. The Iranian file seems to be stuck, so now this is the centerpiece, and it's uh, almost the lens through uh, which the Washington policy community sees many of the developments in the region. If you look at the region, obviously uh, Saudi has emerged as the uh, leader in the Arab world. This has been happening for a while. Now it is obvious. But it's also happening at a time where PA Arab relations, the Palestinian Authority's relation with the Arab countries in general, is at one of its worst moments, ranging from basically non-existent, as we see between the uh, Palestinians and the Emiratis, to very tepid. And even the Palestinians' uh, closest allies uh, in Jordan are uncomfortable with this relationship. So that's happened at a time where the PA is, if not isolated, then certainly marginalized. In particular, it's happening at a time during which Palestinian relations with the GCC, with the Gulf in general, at, at a very, very low point, partly because of the inability or unwillingness of the Palestinian leadership to recognize the regional shifts, uh, partly related to the way that the Palestinian leadership reacted to the Abraham Accords uh, in a very vicious, in a very personalized way, etc. This left a very bad taste in the GCC, both in governments and in societies. So as we speak about uh, the developing Saudi-Palestinian relations, worth keeping these issues as backdrop. Now, I will try to look at it from three different angles, from a Palestinian angle, from uh, an Israeli angle, and from a Washington angle. So on the Palestinian side, clearly the Palestinian uh, leadership is understanding that Saudi right now is the leader in the region. As such, they cannot take a similar stance to Saudi-Israeli uh, uh, relations as uh, they did to the Abraham Accords, if this kind of uh, breakthrough were to happen, uh, simply because Saudi is not UAE, it's not uh, Bahrain. Uh, there are too many uh, Palestinian interests wrapped up in all of this. Now, Saudi-Palestinian relations have been on a negative trend in recent years. I think if you look at the changes in Saudi Arabia, if you look uh, at the emerging sense of national prioritization, everything that's coming with conference, Mohammed uh, bin Salman, there was a sense that the Palestinian issue, A, is no longer a priority. B, there was tremendous frustration with the corruption, poor management of Saudi uh, um, assistance that had been happening uh, all along, and as well uh, a degree of frustration with the sense of entitlement coming from both the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian public, up to a point where the Palestinian-Saudi relations were almost non-existent. This started changing in the last few months, initially through uh, senior uh, delegations, culminating with Mahmoud Abbas visiting uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, for the Saudis, being part of both a regional and aspiring to be a global leader, the Palestinian issue is something that, while it's not uh, a top priority, is not something that they can ignore. Unlike other Arab countries, which dealt with the Abraham Accords, for example, on a very bilateral calculation, for the Saudis, there are a number of uh, regional and wider calculations, uh, and the Palestinian issue is part of this uh, mosaic. Uh, so we started seeing from the Saudis and opening up with the Palestinian uh, uh, leadership, 
it's starting with fairly symbolic level, you know, between the announcement of the appointment of an ambassador and uh, a consulate in East Jerusalem. And I will get back more to this on the Israeli uh, angle, who limited assistance. But I think it would be a mistake to look at uh, this as a, co- a complete reopening or a complete normalization of PA-Saudi uh, relations. A lot of the issues remain. The Saudi concern with the issues of uh, corruption and uh, management is still an issue. And I suspect that uh, as Saudi continues to re-engage, some of these issues would come more to the surface. And I think there will be more and more demand of uh, a degree of transparency from the Palestinian Authority. I'm not sure how ready the PA uh, is this, but at least uh, for the first time in years, we are seeing a degree of engagement that we had not seen uh, in recent years. Looking at it from a Washington uh, perspective, the thawing of uh, Saudi-Palestinian relations can be seen from two different uh, angles. One angle, I think there has been a narrative that was emerging and solidified in Washington in the recent years. And the narrative goes the, the Palestinian issue is completely irrelevant to the Saudi uh, leadership. This has been uh, reinforced frankly, by meetings that many American delegations have had with the Crown Prince and other senior officials in which uh, the Saudi side does not bring up the uh, uh, Palestinian issue. So this was interpreted by many in Washington, I would say even maybe overwhelmingly in Washington, as the Saudis basically being totally uninterested with the Palestinian angle and willing to normalize with Israel uh, with no Palestinian component. I think the two signals that we saw, the opening of the consulate, the appointment of the ambassador, as well as the uh, assistance, is sending a signal uh, to the Washington policy community that any breakthrough will have to entail Palestinian component. How big, how much is something that is uh, obviously up for discussion. Today there is uh, a Palestinian delegation in Saudi Arabia. I think today or sometime this week, uh, Barbara Leaf, Assistant Secretary uh, for Near East, and Brett McGurk uh, from the uh, White House, will be in Saudi uh, Arabia. So I think this this has countered this, and now it's accepted in Washington that any breakthrough will have to have some sort of, uh, of a Palestinian uh, component. This Palestinian uh, component serves a political uh, need for the Biden administration. Ultimately, uh, any Saudi-Israeli uh, uh, breakthrough will require some major asks from Washington. Everyone's aware of them, uh, civil nuclear issues, uh, defense treaty, arms sales. These require support from the Congress. The Biden administration has a problem with the progressive side of the uh, uh, Democratic Party that insists that any normalization has uh, needs to have a Palestinian component. So what we're seeing right now is something that will serve the, so the Biden administration in selling any breakthrough, if one to were to happen, to Congress, particularly to actually the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republican Party probably will be easier uh, to get. And finally, there is an Israeli component to this, and it is both sending a message to the Israelis that the Palestinian component needs to uh, be there, but also signaling, trying to see how far the Israeli current government is willing to go, and almost throwing a challenge to the uh, Israeli government to basically see if it's willing to play ball when it comes to the Palestinian issue. And in this in particular, the issue of the uh, consulate uh, and the appointment of an ambassador was very telling. 
the Saudis basically sent this as a message to uh, Israel that uh, we will be asking uh, Saudi Arabia for something significant, possibly Jerusalem. The fact that the choice of the uh, Saudi ambassador to Jordan to be this was also significant because Jordan has long been uh, concerned about the Saudis uh, trying to muscle them out of uh, Jerusalem. The Saudi ambassador in Jordan is a very active ambassador who's very well connected within different circles uh, in Jordan. This Partly this was kind of uh, reassuring Jordan that this is not going to happen at its expense, but also testing uh, Israelis' reaction. I think the Israelis dealt with this in a very amateurish way, with the foreign minister were quickly kind of dismissing and saying the Saudis are not uh, going to have a physical presence in Jerusalem, prompting the Saudis to respond with a tweet uh, that showed that there was a Saudi consulate in Jerusalem, and even the uncle of the current uh, ambassador was the one who was holding that position. This was sending that signal, and uh, I think the the Israeli reaction was not particularly reassuring when it comes to the Saudis. The Israeli reaction, uh, to my mind, showed that uh, the prime minister is still... uh, very much limited in what he can do, still would not control then highly sensitive to the interest of uh, of coalition members, not only from the kind of crazy extremes, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, but even within his own uh, party, that will constrain his ability to move on this. Finally, is this uh, a signal that a Saudi-Israeli uh, breakthrough is imminent? Who knows? Uh, ultimately, I think what we're seeing right now under the crown prince is we're seeing a different way of doing Saudi foreign policy. So I'd be very humble in terms of prediction. Yet, I just don't see the time, that the time is ripe for this. I don't see that the Israelis are ready. I don't see this current Israeli government uh, being able to have much of a Palestinian component into any uh, deal. Nor do I see things in Washington as ripe yet. Uh, both Saudi and uh, Israel not right now have a Washington problem, especially with the Democrats. I'm not sure. I'm skeptical. Yet what I'm seeing right now are steps that are intended, A, to basically recalibrate Saudi foreign policy in a way that uh, reincorporates the Palestinian issue as part of its larger policy, but also sending uh, test balloons to see what is feasible with the current Israeli uh, well, that was a uh, sum-up of the state of play at the moment with Saudi-Palestinian relations. Unfortunately, I have run out of time and will have to hold over any discussion of the appalling anti-Israel event featuring Bob Carr that took place at Sydney University last night. So until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.